0: So that is, uh, that is a feat to be uh, admired. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this morning. And we ask, we invite you, Holy Spirit, right now to take over this space, take over our hearts, our minds, just uh, push away anything, anything in the spiritual realm, any thought in our head that would seek to bring confusion, that would kind of get annoyed at anything that would keep us from hearing you. We pray that you would sort of cleanse this place, this property, bring, us, bring this under your control so that your word can land on our hearts in a way that not only kind of makes us excited but changes our lives and changes who we are. We ask for a movement of your spirit this morning in applying your word to our hearts. Not that so we can be smart people, but that we can be your people wherever we are throughout this week to come. Amen. Uh, yeah, if you haven't been with us, we've been in three. We're, we we've been doing three series, and this is the third of the series starting today. Uh, the first one was worship, which we did beginning uh, in. January, and then we did a, a four-week series on Word, and now this is the last one, which is uh, a witness, so it's called, all, so all the, what is it called? <laughs> so all may know. Um, so we're excited about this, and we've been praying about those three words for a long time now, and I just really feel like God is answering a lot of those prayers. It, you, I, I would remind you, too, that there have been a great number of prayers that have been answered uh, over the last few weeks that I've just been overwhelmed by. Um, you know, we had uh, Moses and Nikki were facing sort of losing their place to live on January 1st. We prayed for an extension on that. We prayed for something to happen. They got an extension until June. We uh, our prison ministry, the guys, you know, a couple of the guys have not talked to their families in like 26 years. Suddenly, after praying about that, their families are contacting them and having weekly contact with them. And just different things like that. There's just so much going on that God is faithful in. And so let's keep praying about that. Let's keep praying about Alpha. Keep praying about the people you want to invite. This is your one chance to be bold and invite somebody. I've already invited one person that I know, and I've got I've got a longer list than three, so I'm going I'm to be inviting quite a few people. But, um, but over 2,000 years ago, oh, by the way, uh, these guys are back, so thank you for enduring COVID. They're all healthy now. They've tested negative, and, and we praise you. So Stephanie and Keith are uh, feeling better, and they're, they're with us again, so we praise God for that. Um, they asked me if I've ever had COVID. I said, I wouldn't know. I have superior DNA. So, you know. <laughs> I may have had it and never known it, but no, I'm just kidding. Um, But over 2,000 years ago, an outlandish story was circulating at which many people laughed and which we know that many people still do. And that is obviously the story of Jesus, this Jewish carpenter who was crucified as a criminal and then uh, rose from the dead, they say, right? And uh, then started appearing to his disciples, his followers. And the question that that arises is, is that true? Is that story true, right? Um, Jesus' resurrection sort of pumps the heart of the gospel, uh, and and it is Christianity's central supporting fact. It's the most important thing. Everything centers around it, right? The truth of Christianity stands or falls on Christ's resurrection, It really does. And you've got to understand that. Paul, uh, when he was writing in 1 Corinthians, Corinthians, he said, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Right? And uh, then he said, a little bit later, he said, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. So you see how important the resurrection is. And I think it's apropos that we study this as we go into leading Alpha in January. So turn with me to your, in your pew Bibles to page 680 uh, to Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 62. Matthew 27, verse 62, page 680 in your pew Bibles. And while you're going there, I'm, I'll just say a few th- other things. The, the resurrection story we know remains one of the sort of the most uh, renowned and controversial stories ever told. Wow, who's that? Hi, lady. Uh, (laughs) That's my wife, if you don't know that. But but when when sharing the gospel, uh, it is important to sort of listen and understand uh, how others view Christ based on what they've been told, right? Because they're hearing a lot. And while the gospel accounts of the resurrection are familiar to us today, maybe in this room, they weren't the only ones circulating at the time uh, that followed the crucifixion. So Matthew 27, 62 through 66, we read this. It says, the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went went to Pilate. So Christ has been crucified the next day. They go to Pilate, and these are the same guys that went to Pilate originally to get him crucified. And they said, sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, obviously talking about Jesus, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell people, Tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. So these leaders obviously knew what an empty tomb would mean to the world, right? Right? that the claims that Jesus had made about himself would actually be true, or at least they would seem to be true to people. No longer would he have been a simple disruption to their power structures or whatever it is. He would actually be Messiah as, as he claimed to be. Now the story continues. Matthew 28, verse 1 says, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake. "'For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. And the guards were so afraid that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, "'Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen.' Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay and then go quickly and tell his disciples he is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. By the way, he told him this, you know, before he went to the cross and it's and it says there you will see him. Now I have told you I like that little phrase at the end, like like. I was sent here to tell you this. I'm done. You know, and then he's looking to leave or something. But verse 8, so the women hurried from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples, and suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him. They clasped his feet. Important note right there that he grabbed him by his feet, right, physically, and they worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So even after this miraculous event, right, because obviously those guards went and told the leadership about this. You know, Matthew 28, 11 through 15 tells us that these leaders made up their own version of events and then began to spread that very quickly. It says, uh, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and telling them, you are, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, by the way, if a guard falls asleep on duty in, in the Roman guard, it was an automatic death sentence. So that's an important detail for later. Verse 14, if, the, if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy we will satisfy him, in other words, they'll pay the governor off so you don't get killed and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So you gotta ask, why would they be so concerned about the truth getting out, right? Why would they risk the lives of these soldiers by instructing them to say that they fell asleep on the job? What if the payment didn't work, right? Well, whatever the reasons, money spoke, as it usually does. And many believed at that time that, that the disciples had stolen Jesus' body. But the logic really doesn't hold up if you think about that, right? If the soldiers were asleep, how would they have known what had happened? It's a good question. The disciples' courage during that period was, you know insufficient to carry out such a plot these guys were afraid they had scattered they had they had gone in different directions they were they were hiding for their lives you know after Jesus was arrested and it was beyond their ability to carry this out they couldn't have done it but as we know in life the truth is often harder for a person to believe than a lie whatever the reasons they did this God seemed to be one step ahead, and he chose the most unlikely witnesses to report the news of his resurrection first to the world. In a great testament to the truth of the gospel, the truth of the story of the resurrection is that women were the first eyewitnesses in a culture where they were regarded as second-class citizens, and their word really just was not valued, or did not have high value at the very least. Especially Mary Magdalene, a woman of Dubious past, right? Now, other women, uh, you know, so, like if someone, somebody wanted to fabricate this story, they wouldn't have written it this, this way. You've got to understand that, right? And we know that other women were probably there uh, along when we, when we look at the other uh, gospel accounts. But regardless, women were the first to approach this empty tomb while the rest of the disciples were off, hidden away in grief and in fear for their lives. So these women actually turn out to be very courageous. They're going, they're risking themselves, going to this tomb guard, guarded by these soldiers, and they fully expected to find a dead body behind a stone. But instead, they found an angel, and they found an empty tomb, and they found a message. So, ladies, be proud that God chose you first. Be proud of that. And I'm—that's not—I'm not blowing sunshine. I'm serious about that. Be proud. There's something in there, right? It's nice. According to Kenneth Samples, um, there are five strands of evidence attesting to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And The first is this empty tomb. That's something that you have to reconcile, right? You know, most New Testament scholars, even some liberal, agree solid historical fact attests to the empty tomb. You can't get around it. It's far from you know myth and legend. The report was very early. Uh, it had a very early date, and, and it was the, the archaeology of the time attests to this concerning the burial customs, the you know the practices, the tombs, and all this kind of stuff. It was never challenged. It was never refuted by contemporary enemies and critics of Christianity. The empty tomb. If the Jews or the Romans, you know, had produced the body of Jesus, it, this whole thing would have gone away. We never we wouldn't be sitting here right now. Christianity just would have been disproved disproved in a moment, and the disciples could not have proclaimed a bodily resurrection of Christ without an empty tomb. In ancient Judaism, the concept, you have to know this, of resurrection was always considered physical, bodily, right? It was always bodily in nature. It was not just spiritual. So the empty tomb really does require an explanation for the world, and by the world, right? The only consistent one over the history of the last 2,000 years plus is his bodily resurrection from the dead. We were talking yesterday with my daughter and her fiancé back there, Caleb and um, uh, about all these things and just talking about how everything is just be, being proved in the Scriptures, left and right, you know, uh, to, to verify the Scriptures. It's crazy. But still, people are telling falsehoods. Still, to this day, they're telling falsehoods. You know, the Jewish leaders weren't the only ones doubting his, uh, his victory over the grave. Even, even though Jesus had told his disciples that, you know, in advance, right, that he, had, he would die, he would rise again in three days, his own followers expressed doubt, <clears throat> even as reports came in from people they knew uh, of, of seeing him, Right? of seeing this empty tomb. Thomas conveys in John chapter 20, after he was told others uh, had seen Jesus, his own doubt, right? So he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, unless I put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And Caravaggio in this painting shows us the end of that story. uh, Thomas got to do that. He got to do that. To this, to, to this day, the story of Jesus, his resurrection is a is a stumbling block to so many people. Because it seems so crazy. It seems so outlandish. I mean, I'm not a dork. I'm pretty, I'm, I'm, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I I'm not a dork, and I know it sounds crazy, you know. It does. It's a stumbling block to many, but even to those of us that have grown up in the church, sometimes it's a stumbling block. And when hardship shakes on the foundation of our belief, it's natural to experience some seasons of doubt as the disciples did after Christ was crucified, right? I mean, they were all in before he was arrested, but after he was crucified, they're like, eh, I'm not sure I like this anymore, right? And as they sat in those locked rooms, I would have done this. As they sat in those locked rooms, there's no doubt that they asked themselves if everything that they had come to believe about this person of Jesus, you know, all the things that they'd even seen him do was even true. But before sending his followers out with the news of his resurrection, Jesus took the time to address these doubts and to encourage their hearts, didn't he? And that's important to remember when we're sharing the gospel with people um, or, or when we're encouraging Christians that are going through a crisis of faith. And with deconstruction happening left and right, we have a lot of people going through that right now. The first thing we can do is just simply listen well and to understand their struggle, right? Only in prayer and wisdom, only in the power of the Holy Spirit, can we begin to speak in to all of this doubt and this misconception. And we should be patient with others struggling to accept the gospel, right? People were patient with me. My brother was patient with me. My mom and dad too. But you know. <laughs> I didn't forget your mom. Um, but we have to also grow confident in this story, don't we? We really do. We have to grow confident concerning the resurrection ourselves, knowing that the Roman, even the Roman authorities and the Jewish leadership acknowledged that there was an empty tomb. Jesus was gone from that tomb. So hundreds of people, know this, that hundreds of people who had seen Jesus alive while, you know, were still alive themselves during the writing of these things and they all corroborated this witness. This wasn't just a pipe dream. 1 Corinthians 15 uh, verses 3 through 8 is an early creed providing evidence that Jesus had had, uh, risen and was crucified, you know, crucified and risen from the dead, and that was circulating and attested to, with I think the latest three years after the, cru- after the uh, ascension, is it three years? Even, maybe even earlier, it could even be weeks weeks or months, I don't know, but it says this, Paul's writing this, he says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, and this is the creed, the Christ, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, notice how he says that twice, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12, And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And then Paul adds himself at the end. He says, and last of all, he appears to me also as one abnormally born. So the second strand of evidence that uh, Samples gives us is this post-crucifixion appearance of Christ, you know, over and over again. The scriptures record numerous people having intimate and empirical contact encounters with Jesus after his death on the cross. People interacted with him at various times and various places and witnesses sort of claimed to have seen and heard and touched the resurrected Christ. The same person that they had seen crucified and dead three days before that. And all of these in time and in space physical appearances were reported soon after the actual encounters and they cannot be reasonably dismissed as mythical or psychological in nature for the sheer numbers and the sheer trustworthy of the people giving them. The post-crucifixion appearances of Jesus weigh heavily in demonstrating the objective truth of the resurrection. The New Testament describes his post-resurrection encounters with Mary Magdalene, with Mary and the other women, with Peter, with the two disciples on the way to Emmaus, which we're going to look at next week, the 10 apostles, 11 apostles, 7 apostles, all the apostles, 500 uh, disciples, and then James and all the apostles again, and then finally Paul, as he has told us before. Characteristics of Jesus' resurrected physical body are also described in the scriptures. He still bore the marks of his wounds and his, and his hands and his feet and his side. He could be seen. He could be touched as a physical body of flesh and bone. He, he, he invited people to examine his body, and he ate and drank with his disciples after his resurrection. Visions don't eat and drink stuff, right? The story and the scripture, this story and, and, and the scriptures as a whole have been dissected, dissected ad nauseum over the years to no avail by believers and unbelievers alike, by people hostile to the gospel. The the physician and historian Luke, we know, authored both his gospel, the, the, the gospel of Luke, and also the book of Acts. We know that, and, and together those things constitute a one quarter of the New Testament. It's a lot of writing. Was he a re- historian who could be trusted? That's a great question, isn't it? And in an interview with John McRae, who's since passed on, I think, he was former archaeologist and New Testament professor at Wheaton. Lee Strobel, by the way, you can... Read Lee Strobel's books, wonderful books. Um, asked, when archaeologists check out the details of what Luke wrote, do they find that he was careful or sloppy? Right? Careful or sloppy? McRae answered, he says, the general consensus of both liberal and conservative scholars is that Luke is very accurate as a historian. He is erudite, in other words, he's knowledgeable. Uh, He's eloquent, I didn't know what that word meant until I looked it up, so I figured maybe I'd tell you as well. Don't think I'm that smart. But he says, he's eloquent, his Greek approaches classical quality. He writes as an educated man, and archeological discoveries are showing over and over and over again that Luke is accurate. Archaeology has answered every challenge to Luke's writing thus far. Given the large portion of scripture written by him, it is really significant that Luke has been established to be an accurate historian, even in the smallest of details. One prominent archaeologist carefully examined Luke's references to 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands, and finding not a single mistake. McCrae said, if Luke was so painstakingly accurate in his historical reporting, on what logical basis may we assume that he was credulous, in other words, that he just believed anything willy-nilly, Or that he was inaccurate in his reporting of matters that were far more important. Matters like the resurrection, right? The most influential evidence of his deity. Which Luke says was firmly established by many convincing proofs in Acts chapter 1 verse 3. So Strobel wondered, well, what would people have to say about John? Because John's gospel was considered suspect sometimes because he talked about a lot of locations that couldn't be verified. And some charged that since he had failed to get all of these basic details right, that John must not have really been close to the events of Jesus' life. But that conclusion has been overturned over the years. There, there have been several recent discoveries which show John to be very accurate. For example, John uh, chapter 5 verses 1 through 15 records how Jesus healed an invalid by the pool of Bethesda, right? And John provides the detail that that pool had five porticos, but to, you know, to, to a certain date, no one had seen that place or they couldn't find it. It just couldn't be found, but recently, the Pool of Bethesda has been excavated forty feet below the ground, with five porticos, just as John described. Chuck, do you know when that was discovered? Okay, so it's pretty recent, right? So we get so, and, and you have other discoveries, right? That the Pool of Siloam from John nine seven, Jacob's Well from John four twelve, the probable location of the the uh, stone pavement where. Uh, near the Jaffa Gate where um, Jesus appeared before Pilate in John 19, even Pilate's own identity. All of these things lend historical uh, credibility to John's gospel. And so McRae states, archaeology has not produced anything that is unequivocally a contradiction to the Bible. On the contrary, as we've seen, there have been many opinions of skeptical scholars that have become codified into fact over time that over the years, over the years, but that archaeology has shown to be wrong. I love that. I love that. Amen to that, right? And McRae and others and Habermas and all these different people state that people die for what they believe to be true. We die for what we believe to be true. And and not just something that's true, but something that means something so much that you would be willing to die for it. People die for what they believe to be true, not for what they believe to be false. And without the resurrection, there is no gospel. There is no gospel. We would not be sitting here if that tomb wasn't empty. So these people didn't die for a false religion. They didn't die for something that they made up. I wouldn't have, right? I would have made a lot of money and lived my life. That's what I would have done. But they died due to the resurrection. That resurrection event transformed them, right? Then that brings us to our third strand of proof for the resurrection, and that is the transformation of the apostles. Right? Acts describes a dramatic, enduring transformation of 11 men from terrified, defeated cowards after Jesus' crucifixion into courageous preachers and martyrs. Right? Men now bold enough to stand against hostile Jews and the Romans in the face of torture and death. That's amazing. Because such radical change deserves an explanation since human character, we all know it, human character and conduct do not transform so easily or so quickly. Anybody that has kids knows that, right? Sorry, kids. Following Jesus' arrest, the apostles fled, and they even denied knowing him, right? After his resurrection, they were courageous. That was a Freudian slip, right? That was terrible. You can laugh. I don't care. After his resurrection, they were courageous in the face of persecution and execution. We're a little relaxed here. And they attributed this, they attributed all that strength to a direct personal encounter with the resurrected Christ. My wife is back there laughing like crazy. In Christ's resurrection, they found their unshakable reason to live and to die. They really did. The fourth strand of evidence, according to uh, samples, is the emergence of the Christian church. Because within 400 years, Christianity came to dominate the entire Roman Empire. And within two millennia, you know, it thoroughly dominated the Western world, right? Very quickly, Christianity developed a distinct cultural and theological identity apart from Ju- Judaism. Right? Its roots are in Judaism, obviously, right? And according to Scripture, the Christian faith came into being directly because of this resurrection event. As, as I've said before, if if the resurrection had not happened, we would not be here. The apostles turn the world on their heads right they turn the world upside down with this truth and the enduring christian church emerged from that it's an important fact and the last strand of evidence is that sunday became a day of worship you ever think about that the jews worshiped on the sabbath we know that the seventh day of the week from sundown friday to sundown saturday and by the early, by, by the the early Christian church, uh, changed that day to the of, of worship to the first sun, first day of the week, Sunday, the Lord's Day, only because it it it, it commemorated Jesus' resurrection. It was the only reason. His being re- raised to eternal life transformed worship and distinguished the Christian faith from Judaism. And apart from the resurrection. There is no, re- no reason existed for early Christians to view Sunday as having any theological or ceremonial significance. So it's, ev- it's-, it's really a powerful witness that that came, out- came about as it-, as it did. So the story of, Christ's resurrection remains, as we've said, one of the most renowned and controversial stories ever told. When sharing the gospel with others, it is important for us to listen well and to understand how they view Christ because of what they've been told and the sort of maybe the misinformation that they've gotten from people. And being knowledgeable ourselves not only helps to increase our faith, and, and to be excited about our faith, but it gives us the ability to speak in to these doubts which may arise from the falsehoods in another person. There's like an anti-knowledge thing going on in the church in, evangel- in evangelicalism. That's a bunch of bunk. God wants you to grow in your knowledge of his word. He wants that, right? Right. Um, the resurrection pumps the heart of the gospel. It really does. It, it is Christianity's central supporting fact and stands up under intense scrutiny from a lot of people over the, over time. The truth of Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection. It's that important. But Christ has been raised. He has. Yet Christ has been raised. And due to the resurrection, our preaching and our faith are not useless and futile. Not at all. Due to the resurrection, we are not still in our sins if we have accepted Christ into our lives. Due to the resurrection, we have been made alive in Christ, Ephesians chapter 2. Due to the resurrection, we are able to live freely in victory. Due to the resurrection, we are filled with the Holy Spirit The Spirit of God, due to the resurrection, we are able to live for the sake of his mission to this world. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for that event. We know how important it is, and we know how so many people attack it, and so many people speak out of ignorance. And we pray against that ignorance. We pray against those lies. The same lie that those guys spread that early on is still going on today. And so we ask that you would break down those untruths. We pray for this Alpha Course, Father God, that if somebody is believing those lies, that they would be willing to come and talk that through with us. And that they would be drawn into faith as a result. In your precious name, we pray, Amen. Now, if you want some resources, uh, I have by tomorrow. The sermon should be up on the website, and there's some printed resources on the last page. All right, and you can go um, look at that. There's books, there's articles. Uh, Chuck has done a lot of. work in this area and he gave me a whole list and I have another separate list there and then uh, another little video link that's like a five minute long thing that's a lot of fun but you know I've been really enjoying the case for Christ by Lee Strobel and uh, fabricating Jesus by Craig Evans how modern scholars distort the Gospels do you understand that there are liberal scholars out there that have actually created documents to prove their point They've actually fabricated the information. It's amazing to me. Uh, the case for the resurrection of Jesus by Habermas and Lacona. So there's all kinds, and a lot of these books are back there. You can go ahead and take them. Uh, you don't have to pay for them. They're free for the taking. If you if you feel guilty, stick some money in that little black box over there, and. You'll go away here with a good conscience. But I just wanted to make that known to you guys. And I also wanted to make known to you that there are prayer guides back there, these, these prayer journals and these little field guides for prayer. I've really enjoyed this. I, it's like I'm doing, I'm doing this thing uh, morning and night for myself. So that's, that's a good little thing to use. So take those as well. Amen.